So since Mike said I was going to share, I guess I should share. Um, I had invited Brittany to come to California this weekend. If you don't know, she lives in Arizona. To go to a Tchaikovsky concert at the Orange County Performing Arts Center, um, the symphony, if you don't know who Tchaikovsky is. And she, um, she kind of perked up because that was our very first date as boyfriend-girlfriend. Um, so she's kind of suspecting things, and so she comes out, and um, I get the tip from her dad. She's suspecting, so I decide to move it up a day early. So on Friday, I had everything ready to propose to her. And um, in short, what I did was I took every meaningful icon or memory from our relationship and set it up around the mountain in a chain of events so that she would have to go collect them and then bring them to me at the final destination. Um, and it, the way it was done was through pictures. So, um, for example, it would start here at the conference center. She had a picture of Jensen's, and she had to go there and, through a hint, pick up um, a, a pot of orchids, which are her favorite flowers. And then, you know, you go to another place, and then um, another place, and, like, the pictures are leading her there, so she has to kind of figure it out, and, like, she doesn't know this area at all. So she's, like, you know, um, going crazy and asking people for directions and trying to follow my directions, which are guide directions not girl directions, and so she finally, um, basically, I was at a spot, it was, if you guys know where Cedar Ridge is, it was um, all the way up to the top of Cedar Ridge, where it becomes National Forest, and if you keep going just over, there's Santa's Village, I think it's right down there, um, we were up at the, I was up at the top of the ridge, and she eventually found me through all the hints, and there you could see the lake, you could see the desert behind the lake, and I had a tree stump all, like, covered with a tablecloth and candles, and... <laughs> My guitar, I had my guitar, and um, I played her favorite worship songs for her, and then I eased in. It's kind of awkward because she knew what was coming, and I, I knew she knew, so it was like the worst small talk ever. Like, you know someone for two years, and you've never had such an awkward moment before, ever, and um, so, you know, the songs kind of helped, and they're all the hymns, of course, like, Come Thou Fount, so I'm stumbling over the words because I can't even think about anything but except what's about to happen. And, um, and then I say, Brittany, I've got one more song for you. It's a special song. I wrote it for you. Um, I don't exactly have it memorized yet. It's in my guitar case, the song sheet. Can you go get it for me? So she goes up the hill a little bit where the guitar case is maybe 10 feet away from me. Um, I planned that on purpose. And she goes up there. And so while she's going up to my guitar case, I'm getting the ring out of my tight pocket and, like, stump fumbling around with it. And I get in position. And she opens the guitar case and sees um, a dozen roses. And um, she's, like, all taken aback. And I can see it. The face was classic. And I thought, all right, perfect. Here's my moment. So I, um, I'm on my knee with the ring ready. And I say, Brittany. And she turns and she sees. And I ask her. And she cries. And it was a beautiful story. All right. <laughs> Okay, so the elephant is killed. Now we can, now we can get to Job. <laughs> Job chapter 4, let's pray. She said yes. <laughs> Father, we're thankful for the evidences of your sovereignty that you put into our lives and I know for certain that you have led my life to this point. There are too many ways that you changed things that I was resisting to deny that your hand is upon my life. And I know that you cherish every single one of your children. And so we come to celebrate your sovereignty and to put ourselves as servants to it. And God, for those who have questions, doubts, and are in the midst of wondering I pray that you would assist them and that you would bring the magnificence of your sovereignty around them and that you would change their wondering into worship and that worship into wisdom and that they would become those that walk with you as Job eventually learned. So we pray for this book of Job, Father, in the hardness of it to understand it and and the comfort, too, to see what you do behind the scenes of your suffering servants. I pray for all those in this boat, and those that will soon be in this boat, that you help us and make us Job's worshipers at every cost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Why do bad things happen to good people? We hear this question all the time. We wonder this question all the time. Um, more recently, with the tsunamis or the earthquake that hit Japan and the tsunamis that hit Japan, um, I remember the media asking, so what's the case? Either the Christian's God is not good or he's not sovereign. Either he is sovereign and he brought the devastation because he's mean or he's not sovereign and it was out of his control but he wished it didn't happen. And they try, we human beings try to take God and put him in our theology and in our opinions and try to build a shape of God in that. But what Job wants to communicate, this book, is that God's dominion outrules man's opinion. All right, his dominion is massive and it's wide. And Job shows us that our God is sovereign, so sovereign that even evil is a part of his rule. So he rules over wicked. It isn't God against wickedness and there's a battle ensuing between the two and sometimes wickedness wins and sometimes God wins. God is so magnificently sovereign that he can take the wickedness and put it in his hand and propel it for his purposes. That's a big God. And to try to say that he's all good and all controlling and yet evil sometimes somehow lurks its way in is totally diminishing the value of our sovereign controller of the universe. So, Job seeks to plant that thought in our minds. And yes, it still leaves a lot of questions and a lot of wonderings. Why does God still see fit to use evil in his purposes? Why? And we just wonder that philosophically for right now, but some people hit that moment when they suffer or they're going through misery or there's pain. And then that why doesn't become a philosophical question at all. It becomes an emotional, desperate cry as we see Job. Why? Not just why, but why? As he tears his clothes and sits in a terrible situation. The beginning chapters of Job are absolutely critical. Now, as you read Job, understand Job has no idea what happens in Job's, Job chapters 1 and 2. In chapters 1 and 2, Satan and God talk about Job. Satan wants to hurt Job. God says, fine, because Satan said, the only reason Job worships you is because you reward him for the worship. You're bribing Job. That's the only reason anybody worships you. <laughs> Satan, right in the face of God. You're not worth worship. So let's test Job and see. So God gives in gives in. He agrees and he says, let's do it. I'll show you that my servant Job loves the giver, not the gift. And so that's what the test happens. That's behind the scenes. Now, always remember through the story, Job has no idea what's happening. All he knows is pain, misery, suffering. But we, the readers, have the advantage of knowing that God is behind the whole thing. And so what we see right in the beginning, even though the question is pervasive through the book, why do bad things happen to good people? We know that Satan initiated it, but God ordained it. So Satan is his little minion, if you would, his, his puppet. He's using, he's allowing Satan to do certain things so that God can show and prove his points. That my people worship my being, not my blessings, who I am, not just what I do. Now, a little comment here about the book itself, because I think this helps us to read it. If you've read Job and you're reading through with us, you um, buy, you know, Mike's chapters, chapters one through three, that's the good stuff. Um, it's really interesting, and it's, it's what you call prose. It's just writing that's telling a story. But when you get to chapter 4, you're entering into the poetry part of Job. And this is going to carry us all the way just about to the very end of Job. And Hebrew poetry is complex. And you can read three chapters and not even understand one sentence of how to explain it to anybody. So 
understand that this is poetry. And the way I've found helpful to read poetry is to look at the first line of any paragraph or section and assume that that is the main point and the rest is colorfully describing it. I found most of the time that to be true. So really pay attention to the very first lines of a section. And you can, if you read the rest in light of that, you will see, oh, the rest is basically coloring in the, the lines for me. Um, and there's just a lot of, so you got to use your mind. They, they're very picturesque, um, a lot of comparing and contrasting Hebrew poetry. Um, the other thing is the book of Job comes alive every time you read it. The first time I read it was, I felt like I was Job. Every chapter, oh my goodness, this is misery. But um, going through this another time, this time, um, you're like, I'm seeing so much more in this book. And this is actually a massive theological contribution to our biblical canon. So it's a very good one. Um, it is wisdom literature. That's what Job is, wisdom literature. There are three books that are wisdom literature. The first, maybe the one right now in your head, is Proverbs. The second is Ecclesiastes, and the third is Job. When the Jews put their Old Testament together, what we call the Old Testament, right after the exile, sometime after that time, they assembled the books of what we now have as the Old Testament, and the way they ordered it is actually different than the order that we have. We have the same books, but different order. And they insert Job actually towards the end of their whole Old Testament. We have Job towards the middle. They put Job towards the end. And they did so strategically because as Israel had hit the, they were blessed by God, God's people. They had a promised land, a kingdom. Then all of a sudden they fall into captivity and they suffer. And at the end of the captivity, the Jews put Job in towards the end as a commentary to let Israel know we are a type of Job. We've been suffering and yet God has a plan to restore us, like Job is restored at the end. So that's part of the reason that it is, um, it's, it's a book of wisdom. Not like you would actually, you wouldn't actually think that. But that's what the whole, it's, it's going in that direction. Now, you might think, where is the wisdom in Job? We have to understand that there's two kinds of wisdom in the Bible. There is practical wisdom. That is, do this to be happy, do this to be miserable. That's the book of Proverbs. Then there's what's called speculative wisdom. That's Ecclesiastes and Job. Speculative wisdom looks at life and tries to find answers for life. What's the meaning of life? What's the value of life? Why is evil happening to good people? That's speculative wisdom. And the Jews sought to find answers for that in their wisdom literature. So then, what is wisdom? Now, the best explanation I've heard is if you're walking in the woods and you see a black little animal about the size of a cat with a white stripe down its back, knowledge tells you it's a skunk. But wisdom tells you, stay away. Now, that's practical wisdom. But what's speculative wisdom? That would be more along the lines of <laughs> a skill that one acquires. It's the acquired skill to bring order out of chaos. That's the way the Jews saw a speculative type of wisdom. Example, to bring order out of chaos, creation. In wisdom literature, there's always references to God as the creator. You see that in some of the Psalms. Um, you definitely see that towards the end of Job. God challenges Job with the fact that he's the creator. What happened at creation? In Genesis 1 verse 2, we have the mysterious verse that says, Now the earth was without form and void. There was chaos. There was no order on the earth. But God steps in on day one and begins to order the chaos. He brings light. He brings land. He brings vegetation, animals, um, the planets, and people. Chaos turns to order. So God is considered as the head of wisdom because of his ability to bring order where there's chaos. Job is aiming in that direction. Job is in chaos. He is feeling like his world has been dismantled and it's coming apart. It's flying off the wheels. 
And here's the wisdom, is how do we bring control and order out of that situation of suffering? How does Job take what's happened to him and move on? As we would say, how does Job take the lemon that life threw at him and make lemonade? Making order out of chaos. And so that's the context of the wisdom literature in the book, you'll see Job progressing towards this theme of wisdom. In chapters 1 and 2, we see Job as a high schooler. Just kind of, you know, learning the basics of wisdom. Oh, something bad happened, worship God. Well, then in the discourses, that's from chapters 3 all the way through, um, well, it goes further than 31, but 31 for, because Elihu takes up a bunch of chapters and talks for a while. So chapters 3 through 31, you see Job in college learning more about the ways of wisdom because he's beginning to deal with hard questions. He's not just a high schooler saying, all right, teacher, that's wisdom, yay, worship. He's now dealing with real questions. He's writing his thesis paper. He's getting his degree, and he's really wrestling. And then towards the end, in chapters 38 to 42, when Yahweh addresses Job, you see Job in graduate school getting his doctorates in wisdom. And that's where he falls in humility and repents and recognizes that God is sovereign. That's why everything's happened. God hasn't told me why. He's just told me how to cope with it. That he's sovereign and I can trust him. So he's moved on to wisdom by the end of the book. So that's how Jews would have looked at the wisdom part of this. All right, so to the practical stuff. Satan has two weapons against the servants of God. Against everybody, really. The first weapon he uses against all mankind is pleasure. Fill man with everything that he wants. Give him all the goodies. Make him feel pleasure. <laughs> so that he looks at God and says, why do we need him? Life's great. But there are those few, that remnant who emits pleasure, can look past that and see the giver of all good things and worship him for who he is, whom Job is one. And so when pleasure doesn't make you trip up, Satan will then move to a second weapon called pain. And he'll stick it into you to make you think that God is mean and you don't want God. So pleasure makes us say, I don't need God. Pain makes us say, I don't want God. But there's a risk in the, in the pain weapon. Because Satan knows that as he thrusts pain into a human being, it's going to go one of two ways. There's no middle ground like pleasure. Pleasure just kind of rocks people to sleep till they go to hell. Type of thing. But pain wakes them up. And it causes them to make a decision. Either... God is mean and I want nothing to do with him or I have to have God to make it through this. And unfortunately for Satan, it backfired for him. Pain drove Job to God. But those are the two weapons that he'll use. So when pain comes in your life, know that Satan is trying to take you off the path that you're going down. He's working. So in chapter 7, verse 2, Let's take a look at Job's pain. <clears throat> 7 verse 2. Like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages, so he feels like a man who's very tired of work, so I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are appointed to me. Apparently, by the time Job's friends come to him, he's already been suffering for a number of months. This isn't just instant. He's, he's had to deal with not just the pain, but deal with what C.S. Lewis described when his wife died, the worst part of pain and suffering, the fact that you know you're in it and that you're going to be in it for more and more days. C.S. Lewis said that was the worst part, just knowing that I'm going to wake up and still be here in this situation. So that's Job right here. Verse 4. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. I can't sleep, in other words. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. So he's in pain 
mental and physical agony going on here for Job. Now, I wrestled all week with thinking, should I, at, when I go to Job, address the problem of pain? Should I defend the fact that pain does not disprove a sovereign good God? And I studied hard for that. And then I felt like God said, Brandon, this isn't, this just isn't you. This isn't your message tonight for these people. So I backed off and decided to go another route. So what I would want to do at this point, because I know there's so many people who have experienced far worse pain than I've ever experienced and who are far smarter than I am, um, I want to address you guys to three books if you're really dealing with the problem of suffering and pain. Three books I would highly recommend that I've either read all of or parts of. Um, the first would be um, How Long, O Lord by D.A. Carson. How Long, O Lord, D.A. Carson. And then the next two are by C.S. Lewis. A Grief Observed. That's a collection of his journal writings um, when his wife died. Every thought, every raw, it's not edited, it's just his journal writings. It's, you see him questioning God, being mad at God, then you see him coming to conclusions and dealing with his grief. So that's a grief observed. And then the third is the problem with pain. And that's where C.S. Lewis deals with the whole issue of pain and how we reconcile it and what do we do with it. So if you're curious about that, need it, I would go to those three books. All right. Moving back on, let's get into the story. So chapter 4, verse 1, Eliphaz. Now what we hit here is in chapter 3, Job cries out. He, he can't hold it any longer. But his friends had come. They've been with him for seven days in silence. And finally, Job breaks the silence and cries out, why, why, why? And he actually, um, you'll notice some of the language. He's, not he's using creation language such as day and light. Um, and he's reversing it. God brought light, and Job is saying, let there be darkness. He's doing the reverse of creation. So what you see is Job is no longer in a, in a position of order. He's in a position of chaos, like, like the world was before God created. So Job's in that situation, in that chaotic state. Like I said, this, the Hebrews are seeking to find order in the midst of chaos, and that's where Job is. Order has reversed to chaos. And so he cried out, he asks why a whole bunch of times. He wants reasons for what he's going through. He wants to know there's a reason for this. Am I just a miserable, dirty towel just thrown in the bin, or does God have a purpose for this? Did I actually clean something up for him? And so in chapter 4, we now have the first response from his friends. And here's what's ironic. Job asks why. I want reasons here. But he asks God. And God never gives him a reason for his suffering. He didn't ask his friends. And his friends give him lots of reasons. So what we'll see all the way to the end, to chapter 31... It's three cycles. There's three friends. Each of them are going to take turns three times. And it's going to increasingly get more emotional, dramatic, and intense the further you go. They're going to start to get flat out mean with Job. They're going to start making up sins that he never did just to try to get him to admit that he's a sinner. It's going to get nasty, but it's going to start off kind of nice. And Eliphaz here in chapter 4 really speaks on behalf of all three. I think that this is the most important speech in the book. It sets the tone for the rest. Master chapter 4, the rest interprets itself. So understand this. I think we will read. Let's go through it. Chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Tiamite said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? In other words, Job, I see you're in pain. Will you let me speak? Because I know you probably don't want to listen to me. Yet, who can keep from speaking? I'm going to talk anyways. Verse 3. Behold, you have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling. You have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? In other words, Job... You helped so many people when they were in your situation, and now that you're in it, you're a baby. You can't take your own medicine, is what we would say. Nice start. Remember, verse 7, 
This is, these are the two most important verses. I would mark these. These are basically the thesis, the main point of all three friends' arguments. It's right here. You can sum it up in two verses. Remember, Job, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright ever cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Job, everybody knows, God rewards the righteous and he judges the wicked. Let's see, you're feeling pain. God judges the wicked with pain. Therefore, Job, you've sinned. It's the bottom line. You don't have to ask why anymore. We know why. So we're going to tell you why. You know what I call this? Well, scholars generally call this the retribution principle. You sin X amount, you're going to get X amount of pain or suffering or evil. Something bad's going to happen in your life. The, the smaller the sin, the worse it is. The bigger the sin, the worse it is. Now, what's happened to Job here? Oh, he's only lost everything. Everything. So, Job, there's a serious, serious sin in your life. You've got to find it. I call this the causality theology. Causality is the process of cause and effect. So this theology says, this happened to you as a result of what you did. Job, you're rich because you're righteous. Now you're miserable because you're wicked. It's that simple. Causality theology. And I think from this point on, what this book says is we are not, we are not casualties of causality. We are servants of sovereignty. Your life isn't just happenstance, like, oops. If they wouldn't have died if only I tithed more. If I didn't yell at them, maybe I wouldn't have lost my job. What, what kind of theology is this? This leads to this feeling like we're in control of our, our fates and our destinies and everything happens because of what I did. And we really make little gods of ourselves. Worse yet, we affirm what Satan said, that we only worship because God rewards us. So what that means is, if I'm righteous and I get rewarded, causality, then I am going to be righteous. And the bottom line is, it's because I get something. It isn't because I worship the sovereign God. No matter what he gives, I take. That's real worship, and that's a servant of sovereignty. So their theology is causality, and this is what they're going to drive the whole time. God says to Eliphaz in chapter 42, verse 7, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. When you guys continue reading through Job, what his three friends say is bad theology. Now, it is true that sometimes we sow what we reap. We reap what we sow. But it's wrong to say that you always reap what you sow. And that's what the friends want to say. All right, the Proverbs gives us practical wisdom. Don't play football in the street or you might get hit by a car. All right, you play football in the street, you might get hit by a car. Okay, there's some cause and effect. You were a fool, so you got hurt. But to say that that always happens... I lied to my mom, therefore my best friend put up horrible posters of me all over school. All right, God doesn't work that way. He doesn't always, he's not this policeman in the sky looking for your next failure and he's going to get you and punish you. He's not the policeman. That's what causality theology leads you to. Watching every little step, expecting reward and result for everything that you do. Christian, we have a Savior who came to earth and suffered more pain than Job ever did to show you 
that we are not casualties of causality. We are servants of the sovereign God. And he has grace, grace, and grace for us. So in verse 12, here is the basis of his theology. All right, what Eliphaz is, is a mystic. Where do his three friends get their theology? Well, I'll tell you. Mysticism, we'll see that here in verse 12. Tradition, that's in chapter 5, verse 27. And um, oversimplification. I don't know if there's a technical term for that, but they look at life and try to just, everything's solvable. You do this, you get this. Causality. Well, here's the mysticism. Now, a word was brought to me, Job, stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. He was asleep, he's dreaming. Dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my flesh stood up. It stood still. I panicked. <laughs> I added that. But I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even his servants he puts no... And basically the spirit goes on to say, Can anybody be right before God? Humanity is weak and frail. Verse 20 says... Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces and perish forever without anyone even caring. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? So, life has this. I got my source from the spirit world. They told me, Job, you're getting what you're getting because you're a bad dude. So, chapter 5, verse 1. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you, Job? In other words, who's going to answer your complaint? All the questions you had in chapter 3, who's going to answer you? Heaven's not going to hear you. You're bad, Job. Surely vexation kills a fool, and jealousy slays the simple. And then he tells a story about a fool he once saw, and how everything he had was taken from him. Like you, Job. You're a fool. Verse 8 gets a little searing. As for me, Job, I would seek God. And to God, I would commit my cause. Implication, you're not seeking God. And he goes on to describe all the benefits of God. And in verse 17, he sums it up. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you, Job, from six troubles, in seven no evil shall touch you. And he goes on to say, you will not be afraid of famine, sword, destruction. Nothing bad will happen to you. If, Job, you do, verse 8. If you call upon God, you seek him, you commit your way to him, then he will deliver you from all of this. Wow. Verse 27. Behold, this we, see, he's speaking for all three, this we have searched out, it is true, hear and know it for your good. Job, you'd be wise to listen to us. All right, so there it is. Causality theology. And Job is left wondering. Job goes through very hard progress here. The misery comes upon him, and he soars to the mountain peaks of worship. But now... In chapter 4 and all the way to 31, we're going to see Job slump into the valley of wonder. But at the end, he's going to climax on the summit of wisdom. From worship to wonder to wisdom. That's the path Job goes through. And that's the path every sufferer will go through. We're worship that's why you're here now. You're worshipers. But something will happen and you'll become a wonderer. Why? What's the deal? Give me answers.
And that wonder is okay. It is okay to ask God questions. It's okay to doubt, to be human for a second. Okay, if C.S. Lewis, the great defender of our Christianity, had his doubts and was public about them, that gives me permission to say, I can ask God why. In my pain, I can say, do you have a purpose? I can vent my frustrations. I can be real with my father. He knows my thought anyway. When the church has bottled up questions and told people to stop doubting or asking, we've taken up the theology of Job's friends. Questions are good. Theology is important. And if you have questions on any matter, you have a pastor to go to and no one looks at you like, why are you doubting your faith? Just believe. You need to know what you understand or else you're going to become one of Job's three friends and the next person you see victimized by a problem, you're going to look at them as if they deserved it because you don't even understand. Theology is necessary because it affects the way we treat people. Bad theology led to no compassion for the three friends. But Jesus, Jesus never looked at a blind man and said, you deserved it. He never questioned the reason for their condition. He just helped them. Good theology makes us helpful people. Good physicians, not miserable physicians, which Job later calls them. His questions are fine. If you're in that valley of wondering, solve it. Let it out. So what will happen if we begin to solve these questions, we begin to develop a better understanding of God and a theology, you will find humility. If you understand who God is, why this, maybe not why, but th that he's allowing this to happen, and in your pain, it'll produce humility. I, I know some people, you might be thinking that like, I've always kicked the theology thing. Is I, I, know, I know those theological jerks. They think they're higher than everybody. They're holier. You know why? Because that's theology without misery. That's theology that hasn't walked through the valley of wondering and questioning God. That's the theology that says we have them figured out. We have them contained in our box. Chapter 42, verse 7. God says, Elijah has bad theology. I'm mad because you spoke wrong about me. When theology is attained because of our pain, because you're already at the lowest valley, that's good theology. It comes with humility. And when you combine in that time of wondering, a time of questioning, you combine your theology with that humility, it creates the summit that Job ascends called wisdom. That's how you bring order out of chaos, is understanding who my God is and not thinking that I'm better than anybody else. So Job wants reasons, and he's crying out for them. And his friends just say, whatever, Job, we know theology. You deserve it. Look what Job says in verse 3 of chapter 6. Then it would have, then it would, I'll start at verse 2. Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. If you could see my misery, you would see it outweighing, verse 2, heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, 
My words have been rash. You guys are getting picky about my questions about God? You're condemning me for saying why? If you could just see my misery, you'd understand I'm just blabbering feeling. I'm not coming to conclusions here. Look at verse 26 of chapter 6. Job says the same thing. Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? There's no substance to what I'm saying. I'm just feeling and I'm searching. You guys are condemning my theology. See, bad theology leads to no compassion. When you guys are with despairing people, if you're with a Job, don't start criticizing what they're saying. Don't question God like that. He's a good God. Don't say things like that to people. They're, they're, they're throwing words like wind right now. Be there and listen. Um, in A Grief Observed, Lewis talks about how he felt about people around him when his wife died. And he, he said that he couldn't stand them talking to him. He did not want anybody to talk to him. But at the same time, he said he admitted that he hated to be alone. You know, the best thing you can do for a Job is be there. 2 verse 13 was the best thing his friends did. It said that they sat in silence for seven days and nights. And then, well, they say way too much. Just be there. And Lewis ended up saying, I just wish that they would talk amongst themselves and just let me sit there. You know, just, just, just bring them in your company and don't start correcting words, teaching them theology. Let them ask their questions. Let them blab. Be the ear. Anyways. All right, so we're, we're going to lift ourselves out of here now. That was the wonder section. Job was a worshiper. Now he's a wonderer. You guys will read that forever. All the questions. Why God? Give me reasons. Well, this is what happens at the end of the book when God shows up. Actually, you know, look at um, 7 verse 20 and we'll see some of his questions. If I sin, what do I do to you? He's talking to God here. He's just crying out out loud. What do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? In other words, your target practice. You're shooting arrows at me. Why? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. I'll perish before you even care about me. He's asking all these hard questions. And his friends, you know, shut up, Job. You deserve it and whatever. Job just wants reasons. He didn't ask the friends, but they give him reasons. He's asking God, and God is silent. The heavens are shut up. And God shows up later in the book, and does God answer Job's questions? Oh, Job, about those questions you asked, here I am. No. Job starts to challenge, God starts to challenge Job. He's asking Job questions. And he uses two mythological creatures. We don't know exactly what they are. The Leviathan and the Behemoth. And um, I say they're mythological creatures because um, mythological creatures were very common in literature in this time. And they're likely just borrowing from the media, like, like, like what we do with media. We use movie phrases and stuff. They're doing the same thing. They're referring to these massive animals. And in creation literatures, what happened was the gods, like especially in Babylon, their, their creation stories, the gods were, what they did was they took these mythological creatures and they chained them up. And that's how creation came about. These little creatures were destroying creation. They were bringing chaos. And the gods controlled them. And that's why the earth is the way it is now. If they let them out, well, we wouldn't be here anymore. And um, God starts to point out those creatures to Job and says, Job, what can you do with those? But I have them wrapped around my finger. So, Job, do you want to be God? You want to keep demanding answers from me? No, I don't. I confess I'm nothing but dust and ashes, therefore I repent. Wisdom. So Job wants reasons. He doesn't get them. You know what Job gets? It's responses. Job, or God, why? Move that aside. How about how? 
you're in chaos, you need to find out how to bring order out of this mess. In other words, you need wisdom, Job. So here it is. See, we want answers, but God wants to give us wisdom. We want reasons for our suffering, but God wants to give us a way to respond to the suffering. We want to know why, but God wants to teach us how to continue on in the suffering. Wisdom is given when you learn to bring order out of your suffering, out of your chaos. You have that skill of understanding how to respond to every situation. And that's what Job learns. So yes, I don't have an answer, but I have wisdom. See, wisdom doesn't give us answers. It gives us understanding. Wisdom doesn't mean you're the smart guy with all the explanations. It simply means that you can grasp a situation and understand how this can become useful in life. Let's just cheapen it down to our culture. It's how to make lemonade out of lemons. And that's what Job learns. And then God restores him. Why that ending? A lot of critics write about Job because Job is very popular outside of the Christian world. If you don't know this, Job is a literary masterpiece. It is up there on the top. By secular people, everybody critically acclaims Job as masterful literature. And at the end, some people criticize the fact that Job gets restored. It kind of cheapens the whole thing, they say. Hmm. You know what it does to me? It shows me the truth of my faith. Because I live a life of questioning and wondering and why and in pain and despair. And we're not always going to get the answer here. But you know what the beautiful thing about the resurrection is? Those questions become platforms for glory. Like C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce. They say some temporal suffering... Um, some people say of temporary suffering, no bliss can ever make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Or 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction, light momentary affliction, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Note carefully that contrast. Light temporary suffering, eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That isn't just the mere exchanging of, I suffered this much, I get this much glory in heaven. This is complete reversal to the point that the glory outweighs the suffering so that, it's not, so that the resurrection won't mere, merely be a reward for our suffering, but a reversal that restores us to the life that we always yearned for and never had. And Job had more than he had at the beginning of the book at the end. You see the message? Our king is coming with his reward for his worshipers, for his wise ones. And this is all because of Jesus, the one who, like Job, went to the depths of a hellish experience, but he resurrected to prove that every man who puts their faith in Jesus will resurrect. We too will gain wisdom in our sufferings if we keep looking up. Because Jesus is the source of all suffering. Colossians 2.3 says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, can we ask God stupid questions? Yes, I think why is one of them. Lewis said this, C.S. Lewis again, this isn't a grief observed. Can a, can a mortal, a man, ask questions which God finds unanswerable? Quite easily, I should think. All nonsense questions are unanswerable, like these. How many hours are there in a mile? Is yellow square around? 
probably half the questions we ask, half of our great theological and metaphysical problems are like that. And I like that. That's why Job doesn't get the, this is the reason for your suffering, Job. Because God's like, what are you asking me? Here's the wisdom to show you how to respond to it, Job. And that's a great gift. Jesus showed us that way. He is, you'll find him there in the suffering. And the wisdom will be there to help you bring order in your chaos. Is there any accidents that James 1 begins with, count it all joy when you fall into various trials? And that the trials are there to, for the building of your faith, right? Do you know what the very next verse is? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Put it together. God, I want wisdom. Okay. He'll show you how to create order in your chaos. So... We're worshipers, there will be times of wondering. But in those times, Jesus needs to be the center because he will take you to the summit of wisdom. You're going to you're going to experience just theology. You're going to experience who God is. That's what theology is. You're going to know him. And you're going to be able to help other people. So God will take us through those valleys of wondering to make leaders of wisdom. And if we're to become world changers, we need wisdom. And that valley of wondering is the birthplace. Those are the labor pains which produces a wise leader. So Father, we are... in awe that Job was the way he was. In our prayer meeting before church, one of your sisters prayed, really marveled at the faith of Job, and we do too. And yet he had questions. So God, help us. Give us light in the valley. And in our misery, teach us humility. And then through the power of your son's resurrection, teach us to climb the summit of wisdom. Lord, we're not going to demand reasons from you. We're just going to ask for responses of how to handle our life. So give us wisdom, we pray, and all that we go through. In Jesus' name, amen.